All right, welcome to the Q&A, the Friday Q&A. I'm here to try to answer your questions in a way that at least uh, points us to scripture as the source of the knowledge and the growth and the wisdom that we need to try to think biblically about everything. My name is Mike Winger, and the first question we have today, I have right here. Question number one from My Chaos Life says, can a true Christian be possessed or have demons? And here we go. That's question number one. Now, um, this one, I want to have a bit of nuance to how I answer this. My answer is going to generally be, in my opinion, no, but, so it's no, but that doesn't mean there can't be demonic activity causing great harm or distress or other types of things to a Christian. So let me walk you through why I would say yes, but, or no, but on this type of question um, and see what you think about this, right? So scripture is clear that we are in a spiritual war. We're, we're in a, a battle, right? Like we're not, we're not immune to the activity of the demonic as Christians, just because you're saved doesn't mean you don't get at all influenced or affected by demonic things that are going on in the world. Um, <clears throat> so an example of this is where Jesus tells Peter right before, okay, he, he, you know, the garden scenes going on and they're, they're then about to see Jesus crucified. And before this crucifixion, he says to Peter that Satan has requested, has requested, Satan has asked, like catch the wisdom here, the knowledge of Jesus, that he knows the the private conversations that Satan has had, a request made by from Satan to God, because Jesus is is, is deity. But he has asked to sift Peter as as wheat. That is to put Peter through a very hard test. Now, Satan had to ask for that, so he couldn't just, he's not taking over Peter, he's not possessing Peter, not something like that, but he is going to be attacking him or, you know, going at him, so to speak. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Job, how in the book of Job, you know, he he had to ask permission in order to attack Job in these various ways, because Job is, 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 is God's. Job belongs to God, so to speak, he's one of his faithful ones. And so Satan asked permission to attack him, and that permission is granted ultimately according to God's glorious plan. He allows us to experience the battle. He sends us into the battle, so to speak, that we might hopefully achieve victory in him. So Satan's able to test Peter to sift him as wheat, and Peter comes out broken but better. Interesting idea there. Ephesians 6 talks about how this isn't just Peter, this is all of us, that the enemy has schemes that he wants to devour us. This When it talks about our spiritual warfare we're on and how we have to put on the armor of God. So what we all can recognize from these things is that we're under a spiritual attack on a regular basis. And that's not just constant and steady, but rather it can come in special moments. You know, Satan can target you. That's absolutely true. Whether it's him personally or one of his minions, you know, he can actually target you. Uh, Ephesians 4 gives us an interesting element in this. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> it says, be angry and do not sin, right? You, you can be angry, but don't sin in your anger because anger presents us with temptations. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, some people have felt that this means you can't go to sleep until you reconcile with someone who you're mad at. That's actually not true. It doesn't say, don't let the sun go down on a broken relationship. Sometimes you can't fix a broken relationship before you go to bed. Let me just throw this out there because I've heard this and I think it's it's could use correction. Um, but rather, the idea is this, don't let your anger rest in your heart as you go to sleep or as you reach the end of the day. So anger is natural to well up within a human, but you need to process it biblically, take it to the Lord, and then move forward in a godly way 
so that in your anger you don't sin. Don't fe- don't let it fester. But then it says this in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Your anger held long-term, festering in your heart, causing you to sin. This gives opportunity to Satan to how he can mess with you, harm you, bring damage to the church of Christ. So th- this is a big deal. Um, <clears throat> this means that you can open the door to demonic attack, you might say, influence, or basically Satan messing with you by the sin in your life. Um, and I don't want to try to at all create the impression that every time a Christian sins, there is then going to be a follow-up demonic attack. Like like life is just a mathematical equation and this whole spiritual realm is just all math. This plus this equals this. But we know that it gives opportunity. It does give opportunity to Satan to to do things that are not good in our lives, in our churches, and it's not it's not healthy. So we don't want that. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of plenty of spiritual attack. Uh, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. Also, interestingly, Paul's thorn in his flesh appears to me, and I won't go to a full study of it today because this is just the Q and A here. Appears to me to be a physical ailment, the way it's described, and combined with other statements from Paul about how the Corinthians would have plucked out their own eyes for him. So I, I take this to mean Paul had a, a vision issue, an eye issue, maybe it was just like issues going on with his eyes that caused him great distress and made him embarrassed in front of others. And he pleaded with God three times that God would take it away. And this doesn't get taken away, but he calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. So could a Christian be oppressed with physical ailment that's caused by demonic things? I think Paul's a case for that. That is, it's it's a possibility. Would I call that possession? Absolutely not. Is that a possession? Absolutely not. So there could be, you know, Paul needs, you, you know, the thing is, interestingly, the deliverance ministries who, in one hand, I, I think that there's a healthiness to seeking spiritual deliverance from the things you're going through. And on the other hand, I, I feel that they often will go too far um, and over, over diagnose things, right? It's like the guy who, who thinks that um, essential oils are going to cure everything that's wrong with you. Well, th- I mean, they can help some things, but they're not going to cure everything. If you're, when you over diagnose it, it becomes a problem. So. Paul, they, these typical deliverance ministries that I've that I've encountered and seen, they would have thought Paul needed deliverance, and that it just needed to pray more and 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 seek more and get more Christians together, and maybe Paul needs to to repent of something, and Paul needs to fix something about his own attitude, or he has to have a special worship experience, and then he'll be delivered from this physical ailment caused by the enemy. At least that's how I understand the passage, but. Paul has a different lesson in it is that this is something God's allowing for his purposes to keep him humble so that he will rely on God's grace and not his own strength and his own ability. So God allows a a, a demonic attack in Paul's life for God's own glory. And it's not something that, that he needs to be delivered from. It's something that God's actually going to use. This is, this blows my mind. And it teaches me a type of contentment that you never find amongst the sort of word of faith movement. Um, at least I never find it. Well, what about possession? Uh, biblically, is there a case for possession? Uh, 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 well, there's no example in the scriptures of a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, that's an important caveat there, being possessed. So the indwelling of the Spirit was not a normal reality for the Old Testament saints. After Pentecost, boom, now the indwelling of the Spirit is there going on. Certainly by the latest at Pentecost, we have general for all Christians the indwelling of the spirit. Then Paul talks about like you're sealed by the spirit of promise. You know, he's to prove his, his, his word to you. He's given you the Holy spirit. This is like a new covenant thing. 
for Christians. So why do I say that's a significant issue? You know, you could say, well, like Saul, wasn't he kind of like saved, right? And then, then the spirit of the Lord left him and then this evil spirit came upon him. Okay, that's true to torment him. Was that possession? I don't know if that was possession. I don't know if I would call it that term because to possess means like ownership, control, and habitation, indwelling you and controlling you and sort of owning you. Um, would a Christian be able to experience that? Here's why I think the answer is probably no. Um, not only is there no positive example of it happening in scripture of a spirit indwelt Christian, but also there's Jesus's parable in Matthew 12 verses 43 through 45. So there's just three verses, real short parable of Jesus that I think weighs in on this topic. It says here, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, notice empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first state. So also will it be with this evil generation. There's a problem. Um, the, the, the problem, the reason why this evil spirit is able to go and re-indwell, re, you know, re-enter this person in this, in this story that Jesus tells, this principle that Jesus gives about spiritual things, is because it's empty. The house is empty. Notice it's not, now you, the house is just an analogy. He's talking about a person. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, then the house is just an analogy for the person. The person is not dwelt indwelt by any other spirit and so it's still open for business and this evil spirit can come and come into the individual and dwell in them that's simply because it's empty well as a christian the the holy spirit dwells in you how can an evil spirit come and inhabit you they would have to kick out the holy spirit right the, the, certainly the enemy has no power to do such a thing to harass you, to cause you some sort of problems, even to attack you with physical ailments. I think those are all things that can possibly happen, though we shouldn't be paranoid about it. But to kick the Holy Spirit out of you, or if you think, well, maybe the demon can indwell me while the Holy Spirit also indwells me. And I think that this seems to imply that that's not the case. The reason why that the, these evil spirits are able to enter into the man is because the house is empty. Uh, Jesus also talks about the binding of the straw man that you you'd you'd have to bind bind the strong man uh if you guys are familiar with the story or with the teaching um that's part of the whole like taking over and controlling you you, you you're not going to have these two different masters or possessors of you so as a christian i am in a sense possessed by the holy spirit now that doesn't mean that he's taking over my body to control me because the fruit of the spirit is self-control so that's not god's method of possession so to speak that is Satan's method at, at times. We know about the demoniac who's cutting himself and breaking chains and, and or, or others who don't have control over their bodies. That's more of a demonic thing. Um, but I, I think based on this idea, the general idea is that you're sealed and indwelt by the spirit. And that is the condition that keeps something from demonically possessing you. But this doesn't mean that I'm telling Christians who feel that they're under some sort of demonic attack, that that attack's not real. I'm not saying that at all. That attack may, may very well be real. But if you're a Christian who thinks, I'm experiencing what feels like demonic possession, theologically, I agree with you, Mike, it seems as though that that isn't what's happening, but it feels that way, then I would suggest that maybe part of the demonic attack is to trick you into thinking that you're possessed. 
so as to cause you even more anxiety and fear and terror when you're not actually possessed. There's other things going on. There's other lies that are being told to you. I wouldn't believe that one. That would be my general counsel on this topic. I've met, I've met people who hold other views and try to say that a Christian could be possessed by, by uh, a demon. I don't see any biblical warrant for that. I have never heard a good case for it personally. I, I think that the strong evidence is against it in scripture, really strong evidence. I'd feel fairly confident about that and haven't heard a good case otherwise. So that's question number one. Let's go to number two. This comes in from I Love Jesus, who says, Plagiarism in preaching seems to be on the rise. In Philippians 1, 15 through 18, Paul seems to be saying the end justifies the means when preaching. Is this an accurate interpretation applicable to plagiarism? Man, this is a really intriguing question. So first, just I acknowledge with you, plagiarism in preaching is, well... I don't know if it's on the rise or if we're just getting better at noti- noticing it. You see, back in the day, back in the day, I mean like 20 years ago, so not even that long ago, um, generally speaking, a pastor is going to be reading some commentaries, maybe listening to some tapes of some sermons as he prepares. He could just hijack an entire study from somebody, but the congregation is not going to have access to those people. So they're never going to know that the pastor plagiarized somebody. And I don't just mean borrowing insights. We all learn insights from others. All of us do. Uh, in, in prepping for the last question, I was listening to a Remnant Radio video. I didn't even reference it right now, right? Remnant Radio did a thing on the topic of demonic possession and Christians, an hour-long video, and I thought it was very interesting listening to it. And I'm and I'm sure I borrowed some of the passages I pulled to share with you. I, I heard them talking about that. That's a good point. So, you know, if you watch that Remnant video, you might think, well, Mike's plagiarizing. Well, the reality is, is that we're always learning from each other and you're just generally not going to hear pastors footnoting who they're getting their stuff from. Um, so in a sense, it's always been there. Um, but there's wholesale plagiarizing where you're literally just taking someone's words and you're just pretending they're your words, taking someone's message, their whole outline, right? Point A, point B, point C, the logical flow, and just sharing it as though it's yours. I had someone do this to me and um, I won't say who, because I'm not interested in drawing heat to the person, but it was a pastor who took uh, my teaching on Romans 9, on the first part of Romans 9, I think it was, and taught it like almost verbatim, right? And whenever I told a story about myself, he would say, my friend, and he would tell the story that was my story that was, that he said, my friend, someone sent this to me and was like, Mike, is that you? And I don't care. Okay. I, I don't care. I thought it was funny. I was glad. I'm, I'm actually glad to see that my ministry's helping somebody to teach the word, hopefully God willing better. Uh, to their own congregation. Um, yeah, it was weird and perhaps slightly immoral that that he presented it as though it was all his own ideas. That's a misrepresentation that to me is a bigger issue between him and his congregation than it is between me and me and the guy. Um, but yeah, so plagiarism does seem to be on the rise because partly pastors have access to way more teachings. We can f- go online and pick a passage or a topic. I can easily find a number of other people who have taught that more easily than it used to be digging through commentaries. And usually commentaries don't preach well, in my opinion. You read a commentary and you can't just preach right out of it. But when you're actually watching other teachers teach, then you can borrow that more easily. Um, so the thing is, Christians nowadays, not only do pastors can access this other content they can borrow from more easily, but 
congregants can test it more easily. It's, it's all out there on the web. And so you can easily go, wait, I heard that same study from so-and-so. So we're catching people more easily than we used to. So those sort of serial plagiarizers, the pastors who are constantly just ripping everybody else's content off and to shortcut their own studies because they are lazy usually, lazy usually, and they're more interested in looking good than they are in doing their real job as a pastor. I, I don't have a lot of <laughs> good thoughts about, about the character of the people who do that. Um, they're, they've been doing this for years, decades even, but all of a sudden on the internet, people are able to find it and find proof. So this is becoming more apparent. Now, here's the super interesting thing about your question. That's just to catch everybody up to at least where I think we're at in the world on that question. Um, does Philippians make it okay? Philippians chapter one, verse 15 through 18. Is it saying, yeah, plagiarize, schmagerize. As long as you know you're glorifying God, you're bringing the gospel out. Let's read it together. <clears throat> Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or tr in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul has a complex rejoicing that's going on here. Um, and also the preaching, people I think are frequently confused in verses 15 through 17 about what he's talking about. Like, what is the preaching that goes on that is like out of selfish ambition? And I think the key to understand this is they're not sincerely preaching Christ, meaning they don't believe in Jesus. They're not trying to, they don't want people to put faith in Christ. This is what I think people miss in this passage, my opinion here, but I have spent time on this, on this section. They're not sincere. So they don't believe in Jesus, right? They're only talking about Jesus as a way of increasing the pain and suffering that Paul experiences in prison. Who would be doing this? Well, they're not even believers. They're not even Christians. These are the Judaizers the, the, who would follow Paul around and they would lie about him or try to get him in trouble. But part of the part of the lying about Paul is they have to go, he's preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. He's preaching that you have to believe in Jesus. He's preaching that even Gentiles can, can by faith be saved from their sins. Oh, he's preaching that Jesus alone is the sacrifice we need. So just in order to get him in trouble, they're telling other people things that Paul believes about Jesus. Paul's happy about that part, right? So the, the thing Paul's happy about here, this isn't, this isn't pastors plagiarizing other pastors here. This is uh, non-believers trying to get Christians in trouble, but inevitably having to talk about Jesus while they do it. Paul is not excited about them trying to get him in trouble, but he does rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. Hey, at least this is proclamation about Jesus. At least more people are hearing about Jesus. For that, I'm excited. So I would have the attitude toward plagiarizing. Hey, I'm excited that more people are getting good teaching if the good teach if it's good teaching that's being plagiarized. But that doesn't make your plagiarizing okay or good. I'm just glad for this good quality, this good thing that's coming out of it. This is part of Paul's principle in Philippians, this whole book where he talks about rejoicing, which is you find the thing that is good, noble, just, of good report, and you rejoice and think about that thing. Not to ignore completely the bad stuff that's going on, but to never neglect the good things that are happening, even in the midst of the bad. This gives you a heart of rejoicing. It pleases Christ and it gives you a peace that passes understanding. It, this is a positive impact in your life. It's part of Christian, you might say it's part of Christian mental health. There's, there's a truth in that, 
but maybe it's bigger than that. It's because <clears throat> we obsess over our mental health um, to a point that is not mentally healthy, <laughs> I, I believe. Um, so instead, I would say it's part of um, part of a Christian worldview and part of following Jesus is to have this attitude where we rejoice in the good that's happening, even in the midst of bad things. But that doesn't make bad things good. There's my thought. Really interesting question. Uh, Scott Craig says, should pastors avoid discussing current political issues with their congregation? Um, I'm going to give you a, my, my opinion as a qualified answer, Scott. It's the, the pastor needs to just ask himself a question before he discusses those issues. Or maybe a couple of questions. Is this relevant to my ministry to the body? So, you know, the world's obsessing over different issues. We have to ask, my job as a pastor here is to edify and equip the saints for the work of the ministry to teach the word of God and to pastor the flock of God. If I talk about this issue, is it related to those responsibilities? And if not, why am I? It's for the same reason that I'm not going to sit and talk about proper knife technique in a kitchen while I'm a pastor. Is proper knife technique important? Yes. Yeah, so you could avoid cutting off your fingers when you're chopping onions. But it's not relevant to my role as a pastor. So, like, why am I going to focus on that? Um, so, I think you should ask if it's relevant to to my role as a pastor. But the, uh, the pastor should ask another question, which is, do I have a correct biblical understanding and perspective on this view such that I am a faithful guide to others on this topic? This is where I think a lot fall short. Um, they... What they do is they they tend to watch political commentators who usually are not biblically minded Christians. I mean, even if they are a Christian, they tend to not be biblically minded. Some of them are, but many of them are not. And they just learn the talking points from these groups, whichever side they're on. Then they go in front of the church and they just rehash those same talking points. This doesn't seem to me to be a biblically minded Christian perspective on those issues. So the pastor should ask himself if he has that. This is why I don't speak on more political issues. I don't have the biblical wisdom on all issues of the world. And so I don't talk about every issue in the world, even even Q and A's when I'm asked, sometimes I'll say, guys, I'm not sure how to answer that. And I have to move on. And I think that we're, if we're just being honest, like we all have to say that about lots of different issues. It's not that scripture is insufficient to answer it. It's that I'm insufficient to be your guide on this topic. So the pastor should ask himself, now, let's say the pastor has biblical good reasons for addressing this with the congregation, and he has a genuine biblical perspective on the issue that is a good guide for Christians, then he should absolutely talk about that topic on, uh, you know, from the pulpit. Let me give you two examples um, that I feel confident on, and I will openly speak about, uh, and they're very political. At least people will consider them very political. The first is the issue of abortion. I absolutely think this is uh, very clear biblically, and it's very relevant to the congregation and to keeping them focused on following and obeying Jesus in their lives. Okay, I think abortion is a huge and relevant issue pastors should talk about, and it's not that hard to wrap your head around it, biblically speaking, or to speak in a way that helps the congregation. Uh, number two, I think that the death penalty is a topic that is less I would, I would not camp on it as much as I would the abortion issue, but the death penalty is a topic I think the Bible is very clear on. I think that I understand the scripture on this issue, and I am very open and willing to talk about it in a way that is completely countercultural, okay? Right? The, the majority of Christians in my own nation would, would reject my views, um, but I believe that these views are biblical, so I'm willing to speak about it, even though it's going to cause some turmoil. 
because I don't care about the political parties. I care about scripture and how it addresses this issue clearly and how it should apply to our understanding of justice that is an important issue for Christians to be concerned about. So I have a video like on the death penalty. Is the death penalty biblical? You know, because I think that's relevant. I don't have a, a video on immigration laws because I don't understand how to incorporate scripture with specific immigration laws in a comprehensive way. I mean, I could kind of shotgun, what about that one? What about that one? But but in a comprehensive way. So I don't I don't do that. And I don't have the wisdom to guide others in that. So there's some examples. All right, let's go to question number four. And we're, we're full up. we got all the questions we can handle for today. I've got all 20. I'm just going to work through them now. Don Miguelio says, I often get overwhelmed because it seems that I, I need to know everything about every topic, history, science, linguistics, etc., to be able to defend the faith. Do you have any advice? Um, yeah. Um, so one thing is, uh, don't expect yourself to already be equipped to face challenges you've never heard. That's okay for you to just say, I don't know, like have it prepared in your mind, a canned answer. I don't know much about that issue. I'll have to look into it. That's it. Because it's not your job to defeat every single claim a person makes. In fact, sometimes people will string you along forever on social media or in a private conversation even, because all they'll do is make claims with no evidence to substantiate it. And then they'll, and then you'll have to bring all this evidence to prove it wrong. Then they make another claim. Then they make another claim. Then they make another claim. And they can just make empty claims all day long and have you spinning your wheels doing tons of work until you realize, is this fruitful? Like, do they? Here's, a, here's the question to ask. They made a claim and I clearly demonstrated that they were wrong and they seem to even understand that they were wrong. Do they care that they made a claim that was wrong? Or, or are they uncaring about that topic now? Do they just, they just move on to something else? So when someone ignores a rebuttal and just moves on to a new topic, that's a sign that you might be wasting your time. Um, uh, other, otherwise, let me see. There's some other tips that I've learned because I've felt the same way, Don. I felt exactly the same way. Um, Don Miguelio. I, I mean, Don, are you, maybe you're just, is Don your first name and your last name is Miguelio? That's probably what it is. I don't know. See, okay. I'm just, I don't know names. Anyhow, um, you, you don't need to know any, everything about every topic, uh, to be able to defend the faith. Here's a question you can ask. Here's a bedrock question you can ask. Why do you believe Don? Why do you believe? What is sufficient evidence for your personal faith in Christ? And if you go, well, you know, I have the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Um, I think that it's obvious that God exists. Um, maybe you've looked into the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and you feel like that's really strong. You can defend your belief in Christ with the things that have convinced you without having to answer every single thing in the world. It's, it's just, it is too much. It's overwhelming. New apologists, people who want to serve the Lord by, by doing outreach and apologetics, please take the burden off yourself to know everything. But keep the burden on yourself to know something, <laughs> to have at least a reason to defend your faith, to present as a reason why someone else should put their faith in Christ, at least have something. Maybe someone's like, well, what about evolution? And you're like, well, I don't really, I haven't really studied that. But can I talk about fulfilled prophecy with you? Because that's something I'm more familiar with. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And if they force you, if people force you to only talk about issues you don't know about, they're just doing it to manipulate you. That's a sign. Uh, Angel WVM says, 
Does Deuteronomy 24.16 contradict Jesus' sacrifice? Let's look at that verse and let's think about it. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Um, so uh, it's understandable why you would say, hey, uh, at least this raises the question, does this conflict with Jesus? Because Jesus was being put to death for someone else's sin. And here seems to be a principle that you shall not put anyone to death for someone else's sin. And um, I understand that completely. So what we have to understand with Deuteronomy is that this is um, not providing, um, I guess there's two points I would make to help soften at least how you feel about this. Um, one of them is it's not providing universal rules about how God's cosmic justice takes place. It, it's I'm not saying it couldn't apply to that at all. I'm just saying it's not about that specifically. In context, God is giving them laws about how they are to employ the death penalty in their own country. These are death penalty laws. Catch that? This is important. This, this is like if you opened, uh, say, Texas, if you opened their, the books and read death penalty laws, you would wonder, am I supposed to be applying this to the crucifixion of Christ? Well, the crucifixion of Christ was a unique event and it was not a standard policy for countries. So imagine if you looked at the, let's reverse this and say, should I, should I look at the cross and make a standard uh, policy for countries and say, well, I can, I can put anyone to death for anyone else's sins. Like that would obviously be something God doesn't want. So as a general rule for laws for the death penalty, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, uh, nor children because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own for his own sin, right? Because that would pervert justice in the land. This is about the death penalty. Okay. But you, you might say, but Jesus, how is he unique? How is he different? And this is the, probably where I get to the second aspect of this. When we get to Jesus, we have several unique elements that hope, hopefully... Make you go, okay, I can see how this is a general rule, but how with Jesus, there's a unique event happening. One, Jesus is like Adam. So Adam represents all of us in the garden and the sin, the decision he makes stands for all of us. We all fall with him. Now, am I exactly being punished for sin? Not in a judicial sense, not in the sense of like um, a, a law where Adam did something and I got punished for it because we all have solidarity with Adam. We all sin as well. All have sinned and fallen short, scripture says, so I've got my own sins. But there's a sense in which Adam represents us all. And that's just, in a sense, different than the judicial laws of the uh, in Deuteronomy. Jesus is like a second Adam. He stands there to be the figurehead, a representation of all humanity. Everybody who believes in him, he becomes your representative, your high priest, your go-between, the one who intercedes for you between you and the Father. That representation thing is unique. Okay, it's not like father being put to death for the sons of his kid or, or vice versa. This is like um, uh, Jesus standing in our place intentionally saying, I will, uh, let, me, let me back up and put it this way. This is so strong in the person of Christ that it's a core feature of his incarnation. So Jesus takes on human form. And as I understand this, this is so he can represent us. Like he didn't just take on the form of a living being and die for us. He took on human form genealogically connected to Adam, right? He was born of woman so he could be the representation of humanity. I will become a human to represent all humans. Then he lived a sinless, perfect life. 
right? That is so that he could be a perfect sinless sacrifice for us. Then he goes to the cross and there he willingly represents us all. This is so different than, than a government saying, I will kill the son for what the father did. It's That's very different. This is rather God of all creation who made the universe, who created mankind, saying, I will become one of you that I might represent you, live perfectly among you, and then stand in your place to face the, the, the penalty of sin that you've incurred. This was part of his whole design. It's outside the narrow spectrum of judicial laws in Deuteronomy. And it's here moving into, there's a connection there, but it's moving into the sacrificial system of representation and the laying on of sins. You lay hands on the animal to transfer sins, so to speak, that they might die for you. So what I'm suggesting is Deuteronomy is being stretched beyond its intention when you apply it to Jesus. And when you zoom out and you realize that Jesus, this is the purpose of his incarnation. He's willingly going, not not a government saying, I'm going to punish you for what he did. And you're screaming, please no, but rather he's willingly coming just to be our representative, be the figurehead, stand in our place, live a sinless life, die for us. And he's not a, an innocent, uh, well, he's innocent, but he's not just a unwilling victim. Rather, he's a willing offerer of himself for us. When you look at it in its fullness, you realize, okay, it's just a different thing. Deuteronomy needed to be written that way so that we wouldn't have, um, the kind of thing where you punish one person for someone else's sins um, in, in, a, in a governmental system, which is which is be terrible, which be, would be a horrible, oppressive thing. But Jesus is obviously outside of that concern as he's our creator taking on our sin to suffer that we might be forgiven. Anyway, I hope I hope I explain that in a sensical way. Uh, let's go to number six. Eclipsonic says, when do you think Philippians 2 verses 10 to 11 will be fulfilled? At the end of the millennium, at Armageddon, or throughout the future at different stages. Romans 14, 10 to 12, I think gives us some insight. Okay, well, I'm going to start with the Philippians passage. Let's see how far we get with that. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Okay, so it talks about Jesus being coming down low. He suffers death on the cross. Therefore, God's exalted him highly. Right, so that, verse 10... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, so your question is, hey, when is this going to take place? When is every knee going to bow to Jesus and every tongue confess and its knees in heaven, on earth, um, under the earth, those those who are the saved, those who are alive right now and those who are the, the deceased unsaved um, and ultimately even the spirit beings. So you thought maybe Romans 14 talks about a time when this is going to take place specifically. Um, here it says in verses 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Um, I mean, I'm going to just basically say the short answer is, uh, from, from my perspective, is your answer, your answer is yes. This is a time when that will happen. A time. But I don't want to force onto Philippians too narrow of a view that it would be like there's only one moment when, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I would rather look at that as going, eventually, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But I don't have to find only one time when this is... Boom, that's the fruition of it. Um, so certainly a time is when people stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
um, everyone's going to bow to him and confess to him and submit to him and yield to him for sure. So that would speak of judgment. Now that that in Revelation, at least me being a premillennial guy, that that my understanding is that that would be at the end of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ, and there's the second, you know, sort of um, the second death experienced by those who uh, who go through that, and so there's a judgment that go that happens there. But then at premillennial, and this is where premillennial gets a little challenging. Even is there's also a type of um, evaluation or judgment that happens heading into the millennium, and so there could be a time of confession that's there. There's, it, it seems to me that I don't know how to narrow it down to only one moment, but I would say this is one of the moments is when people stand before Christ for judgment. Um, all right, let's look at question number seven. Beep bop says, my husband doesn't believe in the Trinity and gets so defensive when I try to talk to him about the true God. Should I not bring it up and just live as an example advice? Thank you so much. So Beep Bob, this is where life is so complicated and um, your situation is so complicated that that you have to listen to with, with many grains of salt to what I'm about to tell you uh, because there's there's different factors, right? It could be that your husband's overly defensive. It could be that you're, that's one possibility. It could be that your strategy of how you approach the topic is um, inconsiderate. That's always, I mean, I'm not saying you are, okay? Look, but theoretically... There's always a possibility in marriage. Someone's bringing up an issue and they bring it up in a way that is inherently offensive to people when it didn't have to be that that offensive. Um, or it, it could be both of those things, or it could be some other factors that are going on. Uh, maybe there's a, a failure for him to understand certain principles. Maybe there's a failure in your explaining of those principles. Maybe it's some combination of all the, I don't know. But in general, if all you see is conflict when you bring these things up, it's okay for you to just say, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to leave this off our conversation list for now and I'm going to seek you in it. Um, and I think there's a really good example of this in 1 Peter chapter 3. So let's let's read it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, this would be your husband rejecting a very important, some very important theological truths about Jesus. They may be one without a word, without a word by the conduct of their wives. And does this mean that you're you're on the hook for whether your husband comes around or not based on how good you behave? No, it just means that here's something that can contribute to a positive impact in this area. So you, he may be one without a word by the conduct of you. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." I think you have good biblical warrant for that. In fact, I think there's other scriptural support for this too. When people reject after a second and third time and they get only more aggressive and mean to you about it and irritated, it's okay to just stop. They're accountable for responding to these things. You don't just have to bring it up every single time over and over again. Maybe God's leading you to do that for some reason, but if not, general wisdom would be, okay, you don't want to hear it. I'll leave you alone and and move on, but but try to have a great, healthy marriage as much as possible in the midst of that. So that seems like a good wisdom to have. Um, on the other hand, in the meantime, maybe you could be thinking and praying about like better ways to approach for when that one, maybe one day the door opens again and you feel like you can talk to him. Um, you, know, you don't want to keep trying the same method. Um, like I understand for some people, for instance, 
they are really opposed to the Trinity. But if you remove the term Trinity and you just talk about principles that you're talking about, uh, it can get easier. So if you say, so is Jesus God, right? Um, is Jesus the Father? Like if you, that's the Trinity in a nutshell right there, right? But if you stay away from the term Trinity, it can sometimes open a door to talk about those issues. But I'm not encouraging you to try this now. I'd say for at least a season, maybe just try silence. Now take everything I've said with a big grain of salt and may God give you wisdom. All right, number eight, Karen Matthews says, how old will we be in heaven? Thanks for your ministry. Moxie cam, please. Well, yeah, there is. Here's the problem with the cat cam. There it is. <laughs> There's no cat. <laughs> There's no cat for the cam. Uh, she's off somewhere. You know, they go through like seasons where they're, they like to lay in certain places and she's just not laying on the chair. Hasn't been for a while. Um, all right. She, she, you know, she lays, she waits till I'm in a recliner and then she lays on me for as long as I'll allow and, and then complains when I try to get up. So how old will we, will we be in heaven? Um, I mean, obviously I, I'm not, I'm not the, the know-it-all when it comes to everything. I've thought about this issue myself and I have probably more questions than answers. Um, and then I, I can just take a guess at the answer. So let's, let's just take the 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 obvious route of saying well you're you're you you look whatever age you were when you died um that's deeply problematic for a lot of people um because some of them were like six months old and and uh, you might think it's cute to have a permanent baby but nobody wants to be a permanent baby being a permanent baby is not a good thing or you might have been 95 or 103 right? The, this would, this would not be a good thing. I don't want that body. No 103 year old wants to stay in that body. And it would be difficult. Principally, it would be difficult to call that a glorified body where this corruption puts on incorruption. And so I would say scripture seems to at least push us away from the view because a 80 or 90 or a hundred year old body has a lot of corruption going on, right? Whether it's osteoporosis or issues with the spine, mental issues, all that stuff is connected to the way a person looks, the degradation of the skin and the bones and all that, muscles, atrophy. So that would seem to push out the idea that we would all, at least that we would all be extreme of extreme age or that anybody would, because that would seem to be part of the corruption of the world. So this would lean me towards thinking that we're going to be some sort of ideal age in heaven, some sort of ideal mature adult, fully adult you know, like humans, we tend to get to about 28 and things, you know, we get better and better and stronger and smarter until 28. And then everything starts to slide slowly downhill after that, right around that age. So maybe that's around the, the age we would be. I'm just guessing though, because I'm just saying, Hey, my optimum age might've been 28. Right. Um, and uh, aside from things like working out and exercising and eating healthy and stuff that can make you healthier at a later age than you were at 28. But, um, but but here's the here's the, the the second challenge to this is we will also have different bodies like I I don't know if I'll look the same physically and I'd be fine I don't care one way or the other but I will have a new body it's a new and glorified body it's not even the same body anymore and so yeah my 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 tendency is to lean towards however old it is it'll be like an ideal type age not a child not an old person but somewhere in that idealistic sort of age group that would be to me fitting with the idea of first Corinthians 15, this corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. 
And the very idea of aging beyond maturity, beyond full maturity, you're, all aging is, after you reach the point of full adult maturity, is degradation. And that's that seems to me that's part of mortality, not immortality. So there's, see, I, I guess I feel we'll be towards that idealistic age. I've made a bit of a case for it. You guys can consider it and um, accept or reject. That's fine. Um, you should accept that we'll put on immortality and we will be incorruptible and no no corruption in us or demonstrated on us. So there's there's that you should accept. And there's my theory. will be some sort of idealistic adult age. Uh, number nine, Josh Gibson says, do you have any insights on Church of Christ doctrine? I have a friend I'm planning to open di a dialogue with who's in Church of Christ. Um, I see works-based salvation emphasized but need help. Um, I have, I've talked to people who are part of Church of Christ. Here's, here's where it gets confusing to me. Um, Church of Christ is a fairly broad term and there's different groups within the Church of Christ and they are different in their theology. And over time, if memory serves, over time, the Church of Christ has changed somewhat and in some ways become more orthodox over time. And so this gets complicated because I go, well, what is Church of Christ then? You know, like you can even say this with Baptist, right? You could be like, oh, I, I go to a Baptist church. And yet there's some Baptist church that are like LGBTQ affirming and others that are not. And now the LGBTQ affirming, they're not historically Baptist at all, but they'll call themselves Baptist still. So it's difficult to answer that question. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I would want to look, I would want to spend time looking into the specific denomination my friend went to, which branch of the church of Christ are you? And let me look at some of the documents and some of the things you believe. And even after learning that my next step would be to confirm that he believes those things or she believes those things. So this friend you want to talk to, um, let's say, uh, I don't know if it's a guy or girl, let's say it's a girl. So she believes does she believe X about, you know, the Christian faith? And then I would also narrow things down to the most important, you know, about the death and resurrection of Christ and how salvation works and works-based salvation. Like you said, that's a major issue you want to talk about. Um, works not just as fruit of salvation, but as cause of salvation. That That's a huge issue that is worth talking about. So, yeah, I'm sorry I don't have more insights for you, Josh. That's all I got, unfortunately. Uh, number 10. Steely Wilson. Hey, Mike, I was wondering when we get saved, are we still sinners? I know that after being saved, we sometimes sin, but does that still label us as sinners? I thought we were new creations. All right. Um, the, here's the big problem with this one, Steely. Um, the word sinner has been used in various ways. And so the answer is yes and no. Um, if you mean sinner... As in an individual who, at least on occasion, still commits sins, then yes, you are still a sinner as a Christian. But if you mean sinner as a particularly sinful individual who lives a life of habitual sin, the answer is no. The Bible uses the term more often in the second sense. Not because the only people who sin are those who are habitually in, like they're sort of the most obvious sinners of society, you know, so like a mafia don, like, like there's a sinner. Um, that's how, that's how they use the term and Jesus would talk about it. He goes, they, they, they say how Jesus would eat with the sinners and the tax collectors. And then Jesus is like, I came to call sinners to repentance. But then the way Jesus handles this is sort of nuanced because he implies that they're all sinners. 
Really, they're all sinners. In the real sense, from God's perspective, everybody's a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that unless they repent, they too will perish. Um, he he, uh, he even, one of my favorite Jesus quotes, I know this is going to, um, this is gonna, this doesn't seem like a favorite Jesus quote to people, but to me it is because, simple, not because it's goofy or funny, but because I think that it, it realistically gives us, um, sorry, let me get to it. Um, gives us a correction to this issue of us where we where we think uh, I'm not really a sinner because I'm not really doing things sinful or I'm a good person. People are good people. People are good. They they don't need that sort of grace that these sort of Bible thumping Christians keep talking about. Um, but here's the here's the scripture. One of my favorite phrases from Jesus. He says, "I'll back up a little bit." Um, which of you? If, if his son asks him for a bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks you for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. And he goes, obviously, I'm not going to, you're not going to give your kid a stone instead of bread or a serpent instead of a, a fish like to eat. And you so say you give him a snake to bite him. And he goes, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, this blows me away. Here's, here's why it's so perfect. Jesus casually calls everyone evil. Jesus's anthropology is that all mankind are sinners in the in the real sense of people who sin and therefore have accountability before God for being for having evil qualities within themselves. So he goes, if you then who are evil, but he also targets one of the areas in which people pride themselves in being good. I think I think it's a natural human thing to think that you're a good person because you love your kids, because you provide for your kids, because you buy them things and you take care of them and, and you're a, a, affectionate and appreciative and protective over your children. This makes people think they're good. This is why people respond so strongly when they're like, you're saying I'm a bad parent. They're, you're attacking a core identity of their own idea of their goodness. Jesus. He suggests that just because you take care of your own kids, it doesn't mean you're good. Even evil people give good gifts to their own children. People are evil and they need to be saved. This is Jesus's anthropology, his view of man. So in that sense, all humans are sinful and they need to be saved. After you get saved, do you still sin? There's abundant evidence in scripture that you still sin. So what is that, what is it that motivates me to not want to be called a sinner as a Christian? Um, there can be a healthy thing is I don't want to be identified as one who habitually operates in sin. This is habitual sinful lifestyle. I don't do that. I sin, I fail, but I get up and my eyes are on Jesus and I'm my, my general flow of my life is to follow Jesus and I fail in the, mid, in the midst of that. So I wouldn't call myself category sinner. But in another sense, I am always going to be in the category of sinner until I get regenerated and given a, a new body where I no longer am tempted. I still sin occasionally. None of us is sinless entirely and continually between now and our death. And so in that sense, you're a sinner. So I, I guess the, the thing is, like, what do you mean by the term sinner? Yes and no. We, uh, a true Christian is not going to continue in habitual sin. Um, define habitual though. Like there's still sins you're going to struggle with that are the same sins you struggle with. You're not going to live, maybe I should put it this way, a lifestyle of sinfulness of, of I'm not following Jesus. They won't live an I don't follow Jesus lifestyle. That's first John. And so you shouldn't be that, but you're still going to sin, right? The same book, first John says that, um, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So yeah, you're going to sin, but you're not going to live that lifestyle of not following Jesus. Um, I'll just add this, that I've heard some preachers 
declare to Christians, you're not a sinner. You're not a sinner. You're in Christ. You're not a sinner anymore. Um, and they do it clumsily. They don't offer sort of clarity like I just did. They just almost act like these two different versions of sinner are the same thing. And they sort of want to make it sound like Christians aren't actually sinning, even when they're sinning. This to me is dangerous. So one way I've heard this preached is, well, even when you do sin, it's not really you committing the sin. It's your flesh. So you're sinless. Your flesh did that. That is not true. Okay. You did that. The flesh influenced you. The flesh tempted you, but you went and did the thing. And it's, it's irresponsible and delusional to think that I didn't sin when I sinned. And that is actually antithetical to the nature of, of the call of Jesus to face our sins and stand before God and go, Lord, I have no excuses. I don't pretend it wasn't me. I stand before you and I say, I'm sorry. You're my intercessor. You're the one whose blood covers me. I trust in you for forgiveness. So there's, yeah, I'll just mention that for those who've experienced it. Ryan W says, why do so many churches have a head pastor that does most all the teaching when God gives teaching gifts and words to many? Well, I mean, I, I uh, don't know if I can speak to like the evolution of churches. Well, I haven't really studied that, like sort of how that happened or what church was, what typical church was like, say a hundred years ago versus 300 years ago versus in other places in the world. Um, but, um, I will acknowledge this one lead pastor, and this has been my, most of my Christian life is this is the environment I'm in is there's one head pastor who does almost all the teaching and in, uh, Calvary chapels where, which, which I've been part of for many, many years, generally speaking, the, 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 the single lead pastor is the one who's doing almost all of the teaching on Sunday mornings. And he will occasionally have a guest teacher, but it's usually pretty rare. Now, not all Calvary's are the same, but all the ones that I've been part of or been exposed to a decent number, they all have that same basic feel. It, it's pretty rare. You know, I mean, I think even at, at, at Hosanna, I had, I had taught in, in 15 years, I had taught from the pulpit, like maybe eight, eight, nine times from the Sunday morning pulpit, you know, cause I was not this, not the head pastor. Um, now I'm not, I'm not complaining at all. This is not a complaint. I'm just saying that, that that's, that's, that's what it looks like in practicality. And that does have a potential flaw in that it's difficult to develop and raise up other teachers. Um, if you have that environment, but Calvary tends to try to fix that by just having lots and lots of Bible studies and they have a Sunday night thing and they have a Monday thing and they got a Wednesday thing and they got a Thursday home group. And so they have lots of teaching going on where they're developing these other teachers, but usually the one guy feels responsible for feeding the flock on a regular basis. And is that wrong? Um, so there's this one statement in scripture that I find very interesting. Let me share it with you. Um, First Timothy five seventeen. Here we go. Let the elders who rule well, that elder here is synonymous with bishop in the scripture, not in a lot of churches, um, and with pastor, what we think of as a pastor. Um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it seems to me that there are elders who at least aren't regularly laboring and preaching and teaching. And there are other elders who are laboring and preaching and teaching on a more regular basis, even in the early church. 
so that the requirement to be an elder in first Timothy earlier on first Timothy two is that he's able to teach you. you if you're going to be an elder, you need to be able to teach, but are all those able to teach doing the regular teaching where they're laboring in the word and they're preaching and teaching. And the answer is no. Um, there's some who do this more than others. So this at least is very scant information, but it's scriptural warrant for the idea that some of those who are doing pastoral ministry, all of them must be capable of teaching, but some of them are doing it more than others. Um, now, should we narrow it down to only one guy? I don't know if that's, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say that all these churches need to change, but my, I agree with you. My personal preference is to see more variety than the same teacher every week. And, and one of my main issues here is just that I, this is, this is maybe a self-awareness thing. If I'm your only Bible teacher, that's not great. Okay. Like me, Mike Winger, I, I should not be your only Bible teacher. There's plenty of things in scripture I miss and there's gifts I don't have. Maybe it's related to encouragement or maybe exhortation. Maybe I'm not motivational enough. I'm not like whipping you into shape, so to speak, and, and pushing you out there to serve the Lord. Maybe I'm not stirring you up that way. Um, there's plenty of gifts I don't have. But if we have a variety of teachers with different gifts, then then we, we get to meet the needs of the body more. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that's a healthy thing. So that's my personal opinion on that. But there does seem to be, be biblical warrant for the idea that we don't have to have perfectly equal teaching responsibilities for everybody who's a pastor or an elder. So I try to say, Lord, you didn't really outline this super clearly. Maybe that's so churches could could just sort of manifest it in different ways. Maybe you want there to be flexibility in the way the church takes, does these things. And that's why it's not clearly outlined. And so that makes me back off what I think is best and say, mm, you know, each church is responsible before God. I might share some thoughts, but ultimately I'll leave it to them about how they handle things. Um, Ajax Plunkett has a question. Were the mariners and shipmaster selfish cowards and pagans in Jonah? Even with drowning in a stormy sea, I sense hesitation to discard Jonah to save their own lives. Okay, let's read the passage. And I guess the question we're asking is, can we evaluate um, the quality of these guys based upon their actions with, with Jonah? Um, oops, what did I do that for? I put first Jonah <laughs> instead of Jonah 1 in my, in my uh, software. All right. Jonah 1, I'm just going to back up a little bit. We'll read, we'll read the whole thing. Okay. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, um, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa in Israel. They'll call it Yapa. But did you know that? But then we pronounce everything wrong. So don't even worry about it. You could call it Joppa for all I care. Um, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with, with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So he's, he's rented passage. He's paid for passage. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So it was pretty dangerous. Verse five here. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. This is what people do when they're afraid. In, in fact, maybe it's a clear indicator of what you believe in is the thing you reach for when you're in great distress and fear. And if that thing is God, some other God, some person, some drug, 
some thing you grab when you're in distress and fear. It shows you who your God is. It's kind of interesting idea. And they, uh, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean? You, you sleeper arise, call out to your God. See, he just wants help. Remember, these guys, the polytheists are are not exclusionary. They're like, everybody, whatever God you got, ask for help. We'll take help from any of them. They're always willing to just incorporate God into their polytheistic views, but they're not willing to let God be the God of all creation. And so they ultimately reject God, even though pretending to respect him. So arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. This is a really old school sailor thing. Is there like, hey, we got some bad fortune going on. Like maybe it's one of these guys that's bringing it on us. And this is judgment, not just on, not just bad luck. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And this is God going, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him it's you. (laughs) So God intervenes. Then they said to him, tell us. On whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation and where did you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That That's actually contrary to their theology, right? He's like, no, he's, he's the one who made it all. The Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So he tells them the whole story and they're like, not only is a God not going to save us, a God, a God is actually doing this to us. And you say it's like the God who made everything? Okay, now we're scared. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you for the sea, uh, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. So now these guys call out to Yahweh. They were calling out to other gods. But now they're believing that the only God that's able to do anything right now is Yahweh. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not his innocent on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his ra- from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. <laughs> Jonah is the unintentional evangelist here. <laughs> these guys, these guys, stop believing in their false gods. They start believing in the true God. They offer vows, meaning they've made commitments of faith to God, and they offer sacrifices to Him. So here's the question you have about about this whole situation. Um, uh, there it is. Okay. Were the mariners and shipmasters selfish cowards and pagans? Well, they were definitely pagans. Were they selfish cowards? I don't think we have enough information to know the answer to that question. I just don't think it's there. So let me give you at least my understanding of what we can evaluate about their character. Um, you might think, um, okay, well, they're cowards because they're afraid of being destroyed. Well, I don't think that was being a coward like that's right. You were going to be destroyed and killed. You're rightfully afraid. They they um, are definitely pagans because they cry out to false gods and everyone's crying out to their gods as a way of trying to solve this problem. So they're definitely pagans. Um, but are they selfish or selfless? Um, it's it's a, There's just not a lot of data to go on here, okay, in their behavior here. Because you might think, oh, well, they're selfish because they throw Jonah overboard. Well, no, not exactly. Um, that seemed like that was the thing we were supposed to do. 
But you might say, well, they were not selfish because they refused to throw Jonah overboard initially and they kept rowing for shore. But I think the thing I highlighted here in verse 14 indicates that that may not have been their motive. It may not have been their like, Jonah, oh, we would never want to harm you, sir. We care and love for you. We, we wouldn't want to harm you. So let's just see if we can fight through the storm. I don't think that's the case. I think they thought Jonah is connected to some real God who is right now attacking the ship. He's like, I'm rebelling from God. Just throw me overboard. You'll be fine. And they're thinking, this God really cares about this guy, Jonah. If we throw him overboard, he might just strike our ship with lightning or something for all we know. So like, let's, let's just see if we can get to shore, right? We'll do that. Like if we really can't get to shore. So then they can't get to shore. They finally, and then when they do throw him overboard, they kind of do it apologetically. Uh, please, you know, we're throwing him overboard. Like this is a really bad thing to do. He paid us for passage. You don't throw humans into, into ocean water to, to die. Like this is murder normally, but in this special circumstance, we just don't lay his innocent blood against us. Don't hold it against us. We think that we're just doing what you want us to do, right? We, we've Hopefully, we we're doing as it pleased you. So I don't think we learn a lot about their character, except that they were pagans trying to preserve their own lives and trying to figure out what to, what to, hap- what to do there. But it was so cool that they get saved, right? They, they put their faith and trust in Yahweh. Um, they offer sacrifice to him. They realize the true God who made all things. And Jonah's the unintended um, evangelist here, which is pretty, pretty neat stuff, if you ask me. All right, let's go to the next question here on number 13. I Love Jesus has uh, another question. It says, what does Jesus mean? Just a second. There's a weird thing on my screen. Uh, when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew 9, 12 verses 13. All right, let's look at the amazing, amazing verse. Matthew, Matthew 9. Jesus says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's back up and look at more of this. And we'll talk about this context. Um, Verse nine of Matthew nine. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, right? Because this is, the friends and the, the the acquaintances of Matthew, the tax collector. These were considered um, traitors to the Jewish people, tax collectors. And for, for, for good reason, actually. Um, at any rate, they're sinners. This is actually an example of our earlier question where the word sinners is used to imply those who live a lifestyle of rebellion against God and not just people who sin and are accountable to God for their sins, which we all are. Um, and when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What what we're getting, I think, from this story is that the, the, if, if, if trying to provide sacrifice instead of mercy, what we're doing is saying, I will give you something, God, that will make you approve of me. If just crying out for mercy instead of sacrifice, you're saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I'm just asking for your mercy. Ultimately, with Jesus, he provides the sacrifice, right? I don't give him a sacrifice. He provides the sacrifice to the Father on my behalf so that all I do is appeal for mercy. I don't provide something of my own. The Pharisees were thinking, I'm righteous, I'm good, I'm going to I'm going to present to God my goodness. And this is this is normal. This is like our normal default human state. Like I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. I think I'll be good enough. 
And Jesus is like, I don't want your sacrifice of your goodness. I want you to, you to realize you need mercy. When you sit at my table and go, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. I'm a tax collector. I'm, I'm, I'm the repulsive Lord. I just appeal to your mercy. Thank you for receiving me. That's when you're welcomed at my table. Because I came to call sinners, not righteous people. The reality is none of them were righteous. None of them were righteous. But as long as they thought they were righteous, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be able to receive what Jesus was, was giving them. Uh, this, this verse, I require, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a quote of the Old Testament. It's from Hosea 6. Here he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, or mercy is another way to put that. Um, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The issue that was going on with the people in Hosea's time is they kept the rituals of sacrifice, but their hearts were far from God. So that God wanted them to have broken and contrite hearts. And he's like, forget your sacrifices. I don't care about your sacrifices until your hearts get right with me. And so um, Jesus pulls from that in his conversation there in uh, Matthew. All right, let's look at number 14. Quarantino says, does Proverbs 25, 28 apply to coffee? A lot of people are addicted to coffee and without drinking coffee, they get headaches or other problems. Does that mean it's sinful? I really wish you wouldn't ask me about this. <laughs> 25, 28. All right, let's look at this and see if I need to be rebuked. Um, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I love this verse, actually. Um, so ancient cities, to give context to it, ancient cities at the time, uh, a wall was not just a decorative thing, right? The wall is the thing that protects you. It makes it so there's only certain entry points into the city, and then you can guard those or even close the gates so that... Um, it, it's so powerful. Walls themselves are so powerful that many people who would be like, they would want to attack you, steal your stuff, kill kill people in the city. They see the walls and they go, ah, never mind. <laughs> Let's go to a city without walls. A person without self-control, a person who's not able to resist his own desires and impulses, that person is like a city with no walls. Every time a temptation comes, he just goes right to it. He just gets suffers the the, the, the pain of sin in his life over and over again. Developing self-control then is a, an immensely important quality we have to have in life. And so does this relate to coffee? Well, let me say it relates to food in general, all food, because food is a self-control issue, whether you'll eat too much, whether you will, um, uh, even anorexia would be a lack of self-control as well, actually. Um, you might think of it as hyper self-control, but I would say, well, no, this is, you're being controlled by the food instead of you controlling the food according to what is healthy. Um, so, so like, yeah, food definitely matters. Um, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to apply it directly to coffee because coffee isn't controlling you. Now, alcohol controls you. So when I drink too much alcohol, when I use too much of a drug that has a, a, a mind altering quality to it, then I lose self-control. So if you're doing something where you lose your inhibitions, like that's a loss of self-control. That's a bad thing. We don't like that. And so, yeah, that, that applies to those things as well. So it, some of these people are when they're when they get drunk, when they drink too much, they become the man without self-control, the woman without self-control. The problem is this, even though this doesn't directly apply to, to, to coffee as far as it's the caffeine, the effect of caffeine, it can apply in the sense that um are you being controlled by coffee or are you controlling the coffee? Put it that way. Let me let me take you to First Corinthians. I believe it's six. Or is it nine? 
no, no, here it is. 612. Okay, here's some principles that would perhaps apply. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You can drink coffee, Christian. Question is, is it helping you? If there's a point at which your coffee drinking is unhelpful to you, it brings you more harm than good, then there's something wrong and you want to change your habit. Um, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is where it comes into withdrawal symptoms and headaches and all that. I've said in the past, and I think it's still true, that Christians shouldn't be addicted to anything. And that thing dominating or controlling you is a, is a sign of that. And I have definitely uh, had times where I was drinking too much coffee and then I cut back. And and I think that there's application here. Let me put it that way. I think you're right. And I think it's probably just in all transparency. It's a good good day for me to be reminded of that. Um, I've been struggling so much with fatigue and everything that I've been drinking more coffee. <laughs> and I should, I should take the wisdom and say, ah, no, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I won't be dominated by anything and make sure I have that attitude towards coffee. Now, there's going to be plenty of people out there who are like, Mike, you're so sweating little things that don't matter. And I would argue the opposite. I would suggest that when you care about little things, little things, like coffee consumption and whether that honors Christ in your life, that that is the best place to be as a Christian because you should just care about everything, every word that comes out of your mouth that it honors Christ, everything that you consume with your vision and your in your ears, that those things are things you can be you can, you can be unashamed about before Christ, um, and it's a really good reminder in our in our day of overindulgence and lack of self control where everything's pulling at you to to. You know, when you go to the supermarket, you hit that impulse buy section, there's a moment where you are like, you are given the, the opportunity to overindulge, to do something unhealthy or unwise or whatever. Not that you can't ever eat candy. Go ahead, just do it in healthy and wise ways. Um, but with our cell phones and with our TVs and our Netflix and our Hulu and our Disney Plus and, and, and our abundance of food and drink. We are, we are living in a constant impulse buy zone. Like I just live in that zone. So I have to constantly be reminded and I have to dial back those things that are not pleasing ultimately to Christ and not exhibiting that I'm under self-control at all times. Good reminder. Thanks for the rebuke. <laughs> I'll do that. Okay. Anonymous question number 15. Isn't Jesus hating the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2, 6 out of character? Also, who were they? I hear they were a cult from the Nicholas of Acts 6, one of the seven deacons. Um, that's probably pretty unlikely, but let's look at the Revelation 2-6 passage and talk about your questions here. First one, did Jesus hate the Nicolaitans? Yeah, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What's the subject of the sentence? Actually, it's the works. So just, we have to observe it and say, hey, actually, thinking biblically about it, right? That's the works of the Nicolaitans he hates and you hate it too. Um, so yeah, Jesus isn't, isn't saying he hates the Nicolaitans here. Um, although there's an, there's a, there's a sense in which I think love and hate can be complicated and there's a sense in which God can love someone and hate them at the same time. I think that that's true. Um, because there's, there's other passages of scripture that talk about that. Um, but he takes those who like, you know, did he hate Paul when Paul was murdering Christians? There's a sense in which it's like you're under the wrath of God, aren't you, Paul? Well, there's some sense in which God's got hatred for not only what you're doing, but it's you that's doing it. Um, but we can caveat that and say, but there was such love for Paul at the same time that God wants to reach out to him and save him. So anyway, I 
I, I think if we look at hate as being sort of immature, vile emotions, bad feelings that don't belong in any human, then God doesn't have any of those. But there is proper hate, and God has that. At, at any rate, this passage doesn't specifically say that. It says he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. The next question you have is this. Um, who were the Nicolaitans? And this is a huge debate. There's a lot of big question marks about who the Nicolaitans were. Some people look at the term. Uh, they think it means power over the people or something like that. And that it was those who were like trying to exhibit power over, like of the of the laity over the over the or the uh, sorry the clergy over the laity, like the rises of priesthood type stuff and that sort of thing. This is reading a lot into very little that's there. So maybe there's some who've done research on this and they have better answers for who the Nicolaitans were. I'm not sure. But when you let me, here's a clue: when you're just looking at the name Nicolaitan, so laity people, and and Nicol, which I, I think if I remember right was power or something like that, um, and you're trying to derive a whole theology from simply the etymology of a name, I think that that means that you're reaching because you don't have a lot of data to go on. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't lean heavily on that. Um, I did do more research on this a long time ago. I don't recall it now, if there's something more grounded. I'm not sure who the Nicolaitans are, at least off the top of my head. It's been years since I, I, I did Revelation, and I, and I never did it online, so you guys can't see it, sorry. Um, but... Yeah, the works of the Nicolaitans. Did they come from Nicholas in Acts 7? That doesn't seem super likely to me. There was, you know, someone with a similar name. I, I wouldn't. Let me let me put it this way. We need more than simply the names are connected. We need more than that. What we know of the Nicolaitans we can basically look at these two churches in Revelation 3. Here's what we, we know for sure and everything else I'm just not sure about. He writes to the church in Ephesus. He knows their toil, patient endurance, and how they can't bear with those who are evil. They tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and, are found, and found them to be false. Those might be the Nicolaitans because he specifically targets Nicolaitans. So maybe Nicolaitans were calling themselves apostles and they were not. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've, you've not grown weary. And then he says, but you've abandoned your first love. But that's that's not something that this section here, though it's problems they have, it's not something related to the Nicolaitans. So maybe there's false apostles who didn't have false teachings. Maybe that could be the Nicolaitans. Um, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. Some sort of sinful works. But then in the church in Smyrna, Nicolaitans come up again. So let's look at that. And to the angel in the, of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, of, but are a synagogue of Satan. Interesting. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. There's a satanic attack that God's going to permit that when you, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I, I messed up. It was the church in Pergamum where the Nicolaitans come up again, huh? Um, let me make sure I'm right. Yeah, verse 15. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Let's read this and see if there's anything we get off the top. Just right from the text. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Again, he, twice he says Satan dwells there. Wow. 
For I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. This is ultimately, I'll give you the short version, um, syncretism of, of incorporating Christianity and mixing it with pagan religious stuff. I'll have a video re sometime soon on the physics of heaven, which is a book from Bethel Church where they're doing something like that, a syncretism thing with New Age. And practice sexual immorality. Um, so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What's the teaching of the Nicolaitans? We've heard about their works, and now we've heard about their teachings. Something God's really not happy about. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we don't really get a lot more about that. What's going on? Is it is the Nicolaitans maybe the same as the doctrines of Balaam? Is that possible? I mean, maybe maybe it is. Maybe that's the doctrines of, of Balaam are connected. Um, let me say this, though. Even as long as I remain ignorant about exactly who the Nicolaitans were, I want to be cautious not to project whatever theology I don't like onto the Nicolaitans. Well, here's what I don't like, and that's what they must be. I have the wholeness of scripture to show me true theology, and I can easily recognize false theology. So what, whenever that Nicolaitan lie comes back up, I, I can find it. I don't know the, the rest of the answer. Maybe someone else does. Number 16, Josh says, do you think that Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or do you think the passage people refer to are only about end times events that have not yet been fulfilled? Um, I think it's both, Josh. I, I believe Jesus did prophesy the destruction where he's like, behold the temple. And he goes, I tell you, not one stone will be standing upon another. That's huge. He specifically said not only that it would be destroyed, but that the stones themselves would not be left standing on an, one upon another. Um, this was, this is so clearly prophetic and so clearly fulfilled in history that it causes some people to say that the Gospels must have been written after 70 AD, after the things happened, because it looks so much like what really happened. Or others go, well, Jesus, maybe he, 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 he sort of, he could smell it on the wind. You know, he's like, I could tell the temple's going to be destroyed. The tension between the Romans and Jews is coming. But Jesus did more than that. He specifically said that not one, uh, one, stone will be left upon another now in 70 ad when the temple caught fire with titus there and all this other stuff you could read about it, it's really interesting history it caught fire for whatever reason and some suggest the romans did this because they wanted to find the gold that was melting in through the stones they took and disassembled the temple like it was completely destroyed there's the only thing that's left of the ancient temple from from the from the bottom of the temple up to the top of it the only thing that's left is down off the side of a cliff, there's a pile of stones that might be, possibly is, from the original temple, or at least the, the temple of Jesus' time, which wasn't David or Sol Solomon's temple, was a, a, a different one. But um, there's the stones that are left. That, that's a place you can actually visit. You can go see and you can look at the pile of stones. They've actually found it there. This was fulfilled so clearly. I think it's definitely there. But I also think Jesus in those passages prophesies about his second coming and about future events beyond that. Now, if you want more information on that, uh, maybe one of the mods you guys can put the video I did on this on this five or six different views of the end times that Christians have. I talk about this in detail. Um so I would encourage you to check that out if you want some more perspective on end times. But there's another video where I talk about um, the abomination of desolation 
and I get into the idea of G in these two videos in the idea of Jesus giving um, both short-term and long-term prophecy. He's talking about what's going to happen shortly and what will happen eventually. There's both of them in there. So that's my perspective on that. Number 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Oh, number 17. I saw 17 and I read verse 17 in Revelation. This is evidence that my brain is failing. All right, anonymous question. Is living together without being married while abstaining living in sin? I don't know how to deal with so many Christians that think it's okay in light of 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Um... Let's read that passage. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. That is, that's their lifestyle, right? Not like they've fell into a moment of sexual immorality. And I say fell into, that's unfair to say that. It's, it's more fair to say deliberately committed a sin of, of sexual immorality. Um, but it's rather lifestyle. These guys, this is their lifestyle. Don't even associate with them. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Yeah, don't let the church be filled with people in rebellion to Jesus. It's that simple. Don't let there be a church that is based upon Jesus as Lord be filled with individuals who say it and rebel against it all day long. That, that's something churches absolutely need. Um, now, your question, though, seems a little different than this. Because you're like, hey, the verse is about sexual morality, but what if, what if like, uh, now I'm going to assume one thing to answer this question. These are two people that are romantically interested in each other. Okay, they're not two guys that are roommates that have no attraction to one another that are just sharing a house. Two women who are, are just sharing a house, there's no attraction, or, or a father and his daughters, or, you know, I'm not, like, let's say there's two people who are romantically interested in one another, and they say, we're going to live together, we're not married, but we're not going to sleep together, we're not going to do anything sexual, but we're just going to live together. Um, I think that I wouldn't put this in the category of sexual immorality. I would put it in the category of unwise, unwise to the extreme. And I would also be highly skeptical of people who, I'm not saying they're all liars, but I would, I would not, I would not immediately believe people if they tell me, oh, we've been living together for the last six months. We're super romantically attracted. We want to get married, but don't worry. There's no physical intimacy that happens between us. I don't, I don't believe you. Like maybe now I'm not saying I know you're lying. I'm saying I don't believe that. Like I just hear that and it's, it's like white noise to me. Um, and this is how it would appear to the rest of the world too. Oh, oh, that Christian couple, don't worry, they're living together, but there's nothing happening. You know, every worldly person is going to be like, right, right, nothing's happening, right? That's 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 exactly what I expected Christians to say. Um, this is this is unwise to the extreme. Oh, but finances, just get married, dude. Just get married. You can live together, get married. Like in the ancient world, it would have been seen as highly inappropriate, if not... Um, they would have probably the same thing. They would have been like, you know what? We all know you're fornicating. Even if you say you're not, we're just going to believe you are because look at the scenario you're in. It's a bad scenario. Scripture does tell us to avoid the appearance of evil. It is absolutely the appearance of evil. Um, and it would be foolish. So 
even if it's done successfully without falling into sexual immorality, it has other issues about the appearance of evil, the impression to others, and setting a standard that you, maybe you, this rare, amazing couple, me, me and my wife, right before we were married, we could not live together and it would not have been okay. There would have been sin. Okay. I'm telling you, there would have been sin. Um, there's a reason why we didn't move in together until after we got married. <laughs> um, so even if you're some amazing couple that manages to pull this off, you're setting a standard and example for others that is highly dangerous and the world's not going to believe you anyway. So I, I think that you should avoid the appearance of evil in this case, my opinion, but I wouldn't go beyond that. All right. Number 18 anonymous question says help exclamation point. My wife and I have access to our kids text messages. We discovered our daughter text a friend that she wants to tell us that she's coming out as bi. What do we do? Love what you're doing. Um, okay. First thing, do not stop your research on what to do with what I answer you. That's my first advice is look into more people that talk about these issues. Look into people who talk about these issues, who've gone through it with their own kids, who are biblically faithful Christians, right? They didn't go through it and come out as I'm affirming now. Don't look at those lousy individuals. <laughs> look at individuals who held fast to biblical truth, but walked through this with a child who is going through it. Right. Um, so I, I think you should, you should first listen to more than just me, please, before you talk to her, but you should talk to her very soon. I would not wait on this long, but, but look at some more individuals on this issue who you can talk to. Um, one of the things that, that you will have to deal with, let me just put categories out there. Um, there's a concept a lot of young people have, a lot of people have in our, in our, in our day and age that coming out as fill in the blank, bisexual or gay or whatever, you're letting people know what you've discovered about your true identity by connecting your sexual desires to some sort of core identity principle. You, you come to believe that this is the, this is right. I'm merely expressing what's true and right about me. And this is inherently opposed to a Christian worldview. So when I've, when I personally had a conversation with a student who was saying like, maybe I'm gay, I think maybe I'm gay. Um, we spent a while talking about very, very friendly, very graciously talking about the idea of, um, what, what do we mean by gay? And I tried to get him away from the idea of thinking that gay equals an identity I'm discovering versus thinking gay or same sex sexual desires is a temptation I'm experiencing. If you make that move from identity to temptation, 90% of the battle is over. It's the belief that, that homosexuality is an identity, not just a desire that permeates the wrong thinking of the world on this and many churches, even and many pastors and United Methodist church, for example, on these issues. Because once you establish it as identity, you can then either accept or reject the person because it's their identity versus support or discourage a temptation, which is the biblical view of that issue. So your, your, your daughter's probably been hearing over and over and over again that, um, that this is an identity issue, that sexual preferences are part of an identity and, um, that she needs, needs to understand that it's not, um, it's part of a temptation. Now, if you feed that temptation and we are fluid individuals, you know, if you feed that temptation, it, it will grow. And so if you starve it, it will shrink. It may or may not die. It might always be there, but it will grow or shrink depending on your behaviors. Um, and so that's important because the old man grows corrupt and Ephesians talks about that. 
So one of the issues is that identity versus temptation. That's huge. Another issue is, is um, a lot of people have been sort of brainwashed into thinking a lot of young people that if they tell their parents that they are gay or bi or whatever, that the, um, the only options are they love me and they encourage me to ch chase this path or they don't love me and they discourage me from chasing this path. And these are the only options. You need to make it clear that there is a third option, which is we love you. And because we love you, we discourage you from chasing this path. What you're experiencing is a temptation that is not healthy. It's sinful in its expressions. Um, so that's another issue to talk about is separate the idea of like, we love you, but we discourage this path. And that's a category that exists because we've, we've, we, and you can use examples of other things and try to talk to her and say like, yeah, if you have a friend who's using drugs, you love them, but you discourage that path. Um, it's very tempting, seems really good, feels good in the moment, but it's ultimately bad and sinful. Um, another thing that another category I'd want to discuss with somebody, if I had the chance is to recognize the difference between temptation and sin. So that uh, uh, your daughter may be tempted with some sort of same-sex attraction and to go, look, that's understandable. We're all tempted with, with things that we desire to do that ultimately is not part of God's plan or purpose for our lives. That's okay. You're not sinning just because you feel tempted. The battle is in what you do with the temptation. So as to not ostracize or make someone feel like they themselves like are rejected based upon a desire they have, as opposed to that being a normal Christian, a normal human experience to feel tempted to do things that are wrong and to have to deal with that temptation. Those are a few categories I would want to discuss. How do you talk about them with kids? You ask a lot of questions. You, you, you first, you know, gather the data and you try to make an environment where they feel comfortable talking. You don't shout over them. Um, you, you don't shut them down. Uh, those are all things that are important to try to do, and you stick to what matters and what's important. Anyway, I, let's let's pray for you guys. Um, we all we all lift you guys up. We lift up these two parents, Lord, and we ask that you give them wisdom to talk to their daughter, to be able to do so with grace, and with knowledge, with a with a not only a plan of how to approach it and knowing what issues need to be discussed and how to share with Scripture, but also with their eyes open to see the emotional impact, the the thought process that she's got going on so that they could be really good guides as parents to help her through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's go to the next question. Um, 19, Noah C. says, hello, Pastor Mike. Hello, Noah. I was curious what your thoughts are on the modern American military and if Christians can and should serve in it. Thank you and God bless. I mean, my general attitude towards all military is that Christians can serve in any military, but that we, we, and no human should feel like I can do anything that, that the military tells me to you as a Christian must honor God first. And that means that there may be an action or a mission of some kind that you are sent on that you have to, you have to suddenly say, I can't do this. This is wrong. And I think that's the case for all militaries. We need to have that attitude. So in the early church, it was um, this was a, a big problem for the Christians because they had to they, they had to take a pinch of of incense and burn it to Caesar. Historically, this was part of worshiping Caesar as a god, as a deity. So they would take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and they would declare their the lordship of Caesar. Caesar is lord. They would say by which it was like a deification thing. And early Christians wouldn't do this. Now they could have served as centurions, right? Some people think they couldn't serve as centurions. That's not true. 
uh, in the early church, when, uh, I should say even before that, right, when a centurion came to John and was like, John, what do I do? How do I repent and obey God? John tells him, just don't abuse people and don't bully people and don't misuse your power. He didn't tell them they couldn't be centurions. So he never told them they couldn't serve. When a centurion came and put faith in Jesus, he wasn't ever told yet he couldn't serve in the military anymore. Um, but they have to be willing to draw lines. So when they started to have to do a pinch of incense to Caesar and the Christians wouldn't do this, they could no longer serve in the military. But it wasn't as though they were just total pacifists and they couldn't, they, they didn't believe in military service. Uh, Romans tells us that the government bears the sword and that is part of its role with as God or as, as a ministry that God has in, instituted as a, as a thing that God has made governments. So they don't bear the sword in vain that this is something that they're, they're actually, it's, it's um, immoral for a government not to use the sword when they're establishing justice, when it's, when, in other words, to not punish wickedness in the society and the law breaking it's actually wrong but everybody has to be willing to say i have my eyes open and i can see that what that this military act or this command is immoral and i cannot do it um will that get you in trouble yes but you can be in trouble with god or be in trouble with man in those options and i know which one i want number 20 malcolm francisco are there more spiritual gifts than those talked about in the bible um, well, I think there certainly could be Malcolm. Let me just say it this way. There's no indication in these lists of spiritual gifts that they're comprehensive. There's a few times Paul talks about spiritual gifts um, or ministrations or these different types of things. And at no point is it the same list over and over, the exact same list given. Instead, you'll get some here, then you'll have like something you didn't hear about over here, over here. So we we know this. Oh, the list in Ephesians is incomplete because First Corinthians gives us more. So we knew at least that list, it wasn't comprehensive. We got more over here. Well, that list wasn't comprehensive. We got another one over here. So I, that would imply that spiritual gifts could be more beyond the ones listed there, which would actually mean something. That as a Christian, if you're asking, what are my spiritual gifts? You might be looking at a list to try to identify where do I fit? Which one of these do I have? When in reality, you should be looking at your life and just saying, where am I good? at blessing the body of Christ and then saying, that's what I'll emphasize. So we're not interested in just labeling our gifts with titles, but rather finding what we're good at and leaning in on that and saying, oh, I'm going to do that for, for the body of Christ. This is what I'm good at. I'm going to do that. I don't have a name for it. I don't care. That would be a good, I think a good attitude to have. All right. We have a bonus question. Question 21. Uh, Mihaela, is it Mihaela Georgieva says, please tell us what your shirt says. I'll just show you. There's no such thing as too many books. That's what it says. There's no such thing as too many books. Another uh, classic uh, wife wife bought me this shirt. Um, and it, it's actually not true. There is such a thing as too many books. <laughs> but I think it's a fun shirt. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Um, I'm uh, going to hit in stream. It might cut things off a little early. When I do this today, I'll just let you know because I'm trying a new 30 second delay thing. And I don't know how that plays out with when I hit end, do you lose 30 seconds of what I said? But before we leave, uh, I just like to lead us in prayer. If you would join me, Lord, we just thank you so much for your holy word. The scriptures are our guide. Um, and yet so often there's a, a spiritual battle in even reading and listening to and thinking about your word. And we pray that you would, you would help us remember how good the scripture is and how it gives us such wisdom and such answers and such 
it's just life-giving, Lord. Let us remember all the goodness in Psalm 119 about the scriptures, about your word. It's, it's, it's better than honey on our lips, Lord. We, uh, we pray that our appreciation for your scriptures would grow and that we would then be stirred to be in the word and be of the word and, and be people who think biblically about everything truly, just to give you honor and glory as a way of loving you, Lord, by, by keeping, keeping fast to what you have said. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Have a good one. Um, Physics to Heaven video is coming out soon. I will be doing it um, soon. I'm, I'm almost done in just some prep things. And th- th- this this video, okay, it's it's I'm excited because I'm always excited to bring you the fruit of, of the work that I put in behind the scenes. But, um, but it's a very serious video because the Physics of Heaven exposes some very, very strange and... Um, horrible uh, things that have gone on with the support of uh, Bethel Church. And this is not to just attack Bethel, 